Hey there. Welcome to The Geography of Everything, the podcast where we try to figure out the geography of, well, everything. I'm your host, Ronnie Ravid. And I'm your producer, Zena Heilingha. Have you ever found yourself in a room full of crypto bros and heard words like Bitcoin, Ethereum, NFT, or the blockchain? And then realize that you sort of have no idea what they're talking about. Well, us too. But don't worry. We invited someone who knows a whole lot about it. In this episode, we chat with Professor Matthew Zuck, an internet geographer and an expert on crypto. In this episode, we try to figure out what crypto is, how it developed, and where it's going. We discuss whether it's possible for anything to actually be decentralized and in what ways crypto may not be so different from the typical financial system we have today. We chat about the dark side of crypto and the struggle to regulate it. And at the end of it all, we try to figure out how geography plays into it all. Over the last few years, the topic of cryptocurrency and bitcoins and NFTs are coming up in sort of endless ways. It seems that it's a really important topic that we kind of just talk about without knowing. So I'm the first one to humble myself and say, I don't really know anything about this. So we're really excited to have uh, Professor Zuck here, who is an expert, actually, on cryptocurrency, or at the very least, significantly more of an expert than Zena and I. So thanks so much for ha- for being on the show. We're really excited to have you here. Yeah, thanks so much. I uh, Yeah, for better or worse, I guess I can be called an expert in crypto. Um, though, you, you, like, I think the, the most important thing is watch out what you wish for. Yeah, yeah. The crypto community, I think, has a bit of a notoriously poor reputation, but that's okay. We'll get into that later. So just to get started, we want to know a little bit about yourself, how you got interested in this topic and sort of how did crypto come into your life? Yeah, well, I mean, the the quick answer is I've always been interested in digital stuff. Uh, I mean, I, I went when I started grad school, it was essentially at the start of the commercial Internet back way back in the 90s. And so I've always been interested in the geography of the internet and how things came about. Um, at one point, I titled my dissertation "Wacky Wacky Stuff" because that seemed to be like the best description of what the kind of things you could find on on the internet. So in many ways, crypto is just the long, you know, the the the, the latest version of a long path that I've been on for a while. You know, everything from looking at dot coms to looking at. Hmm, GeoWeb stuff, Google Maps, uh, internet pornography. There's all kinds of there's all kinds of weird, interesting stuff that I've re- researched over time. Okay, so it seems like you've been kind of following this progression of the internet over the last few decades. Uh, yeah, I mean, decades. Yeah, sadly, it's decades at this point. <laughs> well, we need someone researching this for decades, so we're pretty glad that you've been doing it. So just to get started, it seems that whenever you open up a conversation about crypto, especially someone who is in the space or knows a lot about the space, you just get kind of bombarded with vocabulary and no one really seems to explain it at all. 
<laughs> so <laughs> we thought that that would be the best place to start with you is asking you for a bit of a, a glossary of terms, if you will. So okay. first question is, what is crypto and is all of it cryptocurrency? Yeah, it's a complicated and simple answer. The, 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 the simplest answer is crypto, crypto and cryptocurrency are more or less the same thing. Um, it all goes to all goes back to cryptography, which is a fascinating, though really complicated field of computer science, uh, which is about security. Um, you can think about it in those terms. Um, crypto, it, it, it all sort of goes back to uh, cryptocurrency because that was the first uh, application and actually the, the most uh most successful application with uh, with crypto and cryptocurrency, uh, which is Bitcoin, which you know still is a really valuable thing, and you know people are still buying and trading it, even though it's been it's come down quite a bit since its peak value. So, so how does cryptocurrency differ from normal currency then? Yeah, uh, cryptocurrency differs from normal currency uh, in lots of ways. Um, the biggest difference is that. Uh, there's no sort of centralized authority for cryptocurrency. Uh, that's that's sort of the idea behind it. Um, and for a normal currency, say the euro or the dollar, uh, there is some sort of centralized authority. A, a federal Federal Reserve Bank, in the case of the dollar, um, the, the European Central Bank, in the case of the euro, uh, and it's backed by governments that are backed by armies that are backed ba backed by you know all the physical infrastructure of countries and things like that. Um, cryptocurrency has none of that. It has, uh, and, and that's sort of what makes it really interesting because there's lots of monetary theory in terms of why do we trade these pieces of paper back and forth and why do they have value? And ultimately, it comes back to the idea that there's a country or there's an army or there's some big powerful thing behind uh, currency. But with cryptocurrency, there's none of that. There's the there, there's there's a community, um, and that has gone and provided more value to cryptocurrency than I think anyone, well, certainly I ever expected it to get. Okay, and then I guess you mentioned Bitcoin, but right, but now we hear about all these things like Dogecoin, like I mentioned, or Ethereum. So how do different coins get their value? Yeah, so we're starting out with the easy questions, I see. Uh, <laughs> actually, it's a, it's, it's a really complicated question, and there's lots of fights and sort of arguments about this, because, you know, there'll be some people who say, well, it doesn't really have any value. Um, but in practical terms, it does have value, because people are willing uh, to buy this stuff. Uh, buy Dogecoin, buy Ether, or buy uh, Bitcoin, or any of the other sort of thousands of different crypto coins out there. Um, and this is, you know, and this, in some ways, it is that there's value for this because there's demand for it, because there's people who want to buy it, either because they see there's some sort of use for it, um, or much more likely because they're speculating on it. They think someone else is going to buy it. And since there's demand for it, that, you know, is, you know, sort of the basic of, of, of a market. There's demand for something, you have supply of something, and where those two meet, you have a price, you have value. Now, you and all, you know, by the end of this podcast, we wanted to, we could set up a cryptocurrency. Uh, we could set up our own cryptocurrency. Um, the big problem we would have with that is 
where is the demand going to come from? Uh, because, okay, maybe we go out, we talk to our families, our friends, we get them to buy it, but I don't know, that's a couple dozen people, they probably don't have as much money as we would really like, and maybe we feel a little guilty about taking advantage of our grandma uh, from you know selling this, this sort of like sketchy uh, cryptocurrency. But that's essentially what people do, um, and they try to create demand in different ways through building community, through saying this is going to have a really useful uh, thing you can do with it, or saying everyone's buying it, uh, and then sort of has have this sort of speculative kind of value to it. But that's that's where the value comes from. But but in truth, anyone could set one of these things up. The uh, the problem is, does anyone want it? Okay, I mean it sounds. And maybe this is my cynical side. It sounds a bit like these essential oil pyramid schemes where people are trying to get others to buy them. Yeah, it's not a bad analogy, but I would say that it's less useful than essential oils because at least you get the oils. <laughs> um, with, uh, with cryptocurrency, it's not really clear what you get. Now, all that said, um, the thing that everyone comes back to is like, yeah, but some of this stuff is valuable. I mean, Bitcoin is valuable. Ether has valuable. Even Doge, and I've not looked at Doge for a while, had value in this sort of weird way that crypto does. Um, so people are actually making money. People are actually taking these things, trading them in for other regular currencies, uh, holding on to them and for a speculative kind of thing. So it's, it's, it's really important to be skeptical about these because most of them are really, really you know, sketchy and they're not going to have much value at all or don't have much of value. But there is ultimately enough there that people keep on going with it. Okay. So my next question is, what is an NFT? Yeah, NFT, it officially stands for non-fungible token, which, of course, is very clear what that means. Of course, it's not. Um, so, <laughs> so a non-mushroom coin, is <laughs> it? Yeah, that would be a non-fungus token. I'm sure that that exists as well. But non-fungible, non-fungible in the sense means, you know, you know, it's a very technical term, but it means you can't change it. Uh, you can't move it around. You can't sort of change what it is. And at its essence, what an NFT is, it's data recorded in a blockchain. It's about generally about ownership of property, and that that record can only be changed within the blockchain. So... Essentially, it would be a record saying, you know, we could make an NFT right now of this recording. And we could record it in a blockchain, say the Ethereum blockchain, which is one of many. Uh, and we could, we could say that this is the only true copy of this recording, of this audio recording. Now, since it's digital, anyone could make copies of that recording and have it for themselves, but they wouldn't have that record saying that this was the official copy of it. So it means that, for instance, if you have a painting, you have kind of an official document with that painting that says this is the real painting and not some kind of fake copy of the painting. Yeah, and it's, I mean, that that's true. And it's really, it's really interesting there because it doesn't mean you actually own that painting. You sort of own the data record. Um, you don't necessarily uh, own the copyright or the intellectual property rights or anything like that. It's simply saying that you own this data record. Uh, and some of the really interesting things with NFTs is people 
have made NFTs of things they don't actually own um, because you don't need to own it in order to make an NFT of it. But I guess that's true for a lot of digital stuff, right? As in, because it's digital, you can't really own it because you can copy it just to anyone? Yeah, well, that's, that is definitely the problem that NFTs are trying to solve. Um, I mean, it sounds strange to, to say it, but one of the problems with uh, digital, the digital world is there's no scarcity. And we, we, and the problem with there not being, I mean, it sounds great. There not being scarcity is great. We would love if there was, you know, we didn't have, have to worry about scarcity of food or energy or things like that. But within the digital world, it's a problem because if things aren't scarce, they have no value. There's no price because you can make a copy for free and so forth. And there's ways of, of trying to get around that, and that's through copyright law and enforcement. But NFTs are essentially trying to solve this problem of scarcity of digital goods. Um, and it only works if everyone agrees that this that, that this one place has the authoritative authoritative copy that matters, that's valuable. Um, and that's really hard to do because you could imagine everyone wants to be that place. Everyone wants to be that platform where these digital objects are valuable. Because if you are, you can get, you know, two, five percent of every transaction and make lots and lots of money. And so with NFTs, essentially everyone tried to set, set up this platform. But wait a minute, you just said that it, cryptocurrency isn't centralized and this platform sounds kind of centralized, right? Yes, exactly. Um, and and it, it, this is the inherent sort of problem and sort of uh, back and forth you go with these sort of cryptocurrencies and NFTs. Ultimately, in order to stay true to the vision of blockchain, uh, you want everything to be decentralized. Um, but having a decentralized system is really complicated, and it's only really been able to work so far really well uh, for currencies. So it seems to me that there's sort of this kind of interesting duality to it, where on the one hand, we're saying like it's completely decentralized, or maybe you could even say like democratized, given this explanation. But on the other hand, like based on its original kind of purpose, if I'm getting that right, was to avoid a lot of this oversight, right? Yeah. And this, I mean, and this is the really interesting thing. I mean, and this is where you get to see all kinds of fights within um, the crypto blockchain community. Because um, essentially, like I said earlier, it started out as sort of a hobbyist project. Um, people were interested in the technology. They're interested in this decentralized way of exchange. But more and more people got interested and big capital got interested. And big capital is actually perfectly happy with central banks and perfectly ha happy with centralized authority because that's how they know it's trustworthy. Uh, and so you have different people coming into it. And so you now have blockchains that are operating their blockchains, but they, they don't have this decentralized authority sense to it. And it's a, and you have other kinds of blockchains that are, you know, tied into central banks or tied into financial institutions. Pretty much everything the original blockchain project was against, um, but that's what's happening. So, 
that's that's part of the, that's what part of the confusion as well. I think one more one more thing I will want to do want to say is that the the idea of a decentralized blockchain and this sort of democratized sort of system to finance this gets a lot of rhetoric. It's sort of an important part of the ideology. Um, in the end, it's never been as decentralized as people want to claim. Because, you know, for various reasons, there's always been a couple people who have been able to go into and go into the system and fix things when they needed to. Because it's technology. Technology is going to break. It's not going to work perfectly. And so that's always been part of it as well. So part of what you're probably hearing from me as well is I'm very, I'm very skeptical about the ability for it to be as decentralized as its proponents like to talk about. Yeah, I mean, it, it seems like a bit of an impossible mission. I mean, the three of us are sitting here in the field of geography. The concept that anything is completely decentralized is kind of fundamentally against everything we believe, yep. <laughs> I think. Yep, totally. Um, so you kind of did mention the sort of shift from the from the original uses and at least the original ideology, we can call it. But I think a lot of people, when they think of blockchain, especially in these early times, <clears throat> we think about the sort of dark side to it. So it was used for things like human trafficking and scams and drug trafficking and all of these pretty kind of nefarious activities. So kind of where does that all play into this now? Yeah, well, I mean, the early days of, uh, and this is mostly just Bitcoin at this point. This is before it got beyond Bitcoin. But you had things like the Silk Road, which was a uh, basically a marketplace for all kinds of illegal goods. Um, you know, drugs is probably the most you know benign example that, that was being bought and sold on there. Um, you also have characters like uh, someone who called themselves uh, the Dread Pirate Roberts, who uh, was uh, controlling... Uh, controlling the Silk Road and eventually got uh, got arrested by the FBI because he uh, put a assassination head out on someone. Um, so it's a very crazy uh, set of, of activities. And in some ways that's that's calmed down or at least it's it's been de-emphasized because, like I said, a lot more, you know, uh, straight-laced financial banker types are interested in this or getting involved. And... You know, the, I mean, I'm not I'm not saying that these are necessarily like good is not the wrong word. These are not necessarily nice people, um, but they are very they don't want to get they don't want to go to jail. So they're very happy to do crazy things as long as it's not illegal or as long as they don't think it's too illegal or they think they can they can they can justify it uh, if uh, the police come uh, knocking. So you have a lot of that. Now, that said. It's still really useful to have, you know, a currency that can be, you know, traded back and forth and used to buy and sell uh, illicit goods or, you know, uh, you know, be involved in the underground ground economy and things like that. So this is still pretty much going on. Um, it's just I think it's probably safer to say that the crypto world, the crypto market has gotten a lot bigger. So that is a small percentage a percentage of things than it was earlier. But that said, there's lots of shady finance going on in the, the regular financial sector as well. So um, this is 
this this is just another tool for people who want to do offshore shore accounts and uh, and you know keep their money from being taxed. Okay, so it seems like it kind of in one way became significantly more legitimate in a sense, or at least regulated to say than it was. Well, yeah, it's it's interesting. I think legitimate's a nice word. Uh, regulated. I mean. It's 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 still kind of um, it's still more I guess it's still more unregulated in store still more sometimes the people will refer to it as the wild west that's you know some, a term that a lot of tech folks like because one of the real advantages of it is that standard banking or finance is heavily heavily regulated heavily regulated because. I mean, it's caused depressions and recessions, and everyone sort of said, you know, that's that's bad. Let's not do that anymore. Let's try to regulate that. You know, there's been lots of deregulation, but the, what the, one of the real advantages of blockchain and blockchain or crypto-related kind of things is it's new, so there aren't any laws, uh, or the laws are murky. And so you can do things that you probably shouldn't do or are problematic or, you know, might hurt people and things like that. But it's not illegal or not illegal yet. And so there's sort of a moving target on how these things get regulated. Um, but there are increasingly, you know, you know, big players who are involved and, and you know, as, you know, bigger and bigger uh, capital interests and firms get involved, they want to protect their investments. So, you know, they're, they're going to keep, keep going with it. Okay, so you mentioned these sort of like kind of big firms and, in a sense, big players, which I guess, um, coming from economic geography, we think of something that is typically clustered in space or agglomerates, if we want to use our personal jargon. So we kind of mentioned before that it's really difficult to understand this as being decentralized or, in a sense, kind of like non-spatial for the three of us in specific. So is it even possible to kind of understand this from a geographical perspective if it is, in a sense, non-spatial? Yeah, well, I mean, I guess there's no such thing as non-spatial. So there was a recent paper I did um, mapping the uneven geographies of digital, of digital phenomena, the case of blockchain. Um, there's an article in Canadian Geographer. And I just bring it up because this is, in some ways, the, the big question for this podcast you know, what, what is a geography of something so digital like uh, blockchain? And essentially, there's always something you can measure. And what we proposed uh, in this paper is, you know, four broad categories. We called it the, the DIGO framework, just because that's just the initials. And you got to be clever in academia to, you know, come up with a little like so saying. So DIGO stands for discourses or what people are saying or what people are talking about. Uh, infrastructure, which, you know, can show up in various things. Uh, Bitcoin mining is a great example of it. Uh, and then groupings, uh, which are, you know, groupings of firms or clusters of people like you were talking about. And then outcomes, um, which are some sort of effect. And we can measure that, you know, in different ways. And that was sort of what the paper was about. So, you know, think about discourses. It's sort of like, where are people talking about uh, blockchain or crypto? Um, and 
you can see that in different ways. You can see that through social media. You can certainly see that in news groups. You can see that in bars and sort of uh, sort of conversations. Um, that's that's sort of an interesting way of looking at it. Um, infrastructure, I think, is probably the, like the most interesting way of looking at digital phenomenon like blockchain and crypto, because you know then you're things you have to things like okay, where are where are the, the miners for Bitcoin or other sort of uh, cryptocurrencies? These are computers that are necessary to create these uh, new coins, these, these currencies. So for technical reasons, I won't go into. But where are those located? Um, and one of the big things that uh, you know, people talk a lot about with uh, cryptocurrencies is how much energy it uses. Um, it uses a phenomenal amount of energy in order to operate. Uh, because of the way it's set up. Um, that means that the thing you want to minimize for infrastructure is electricity cost. And so we saw a lot of cryptocurrency and Bitcoin miners being located uh, close to cheap energy sources like hydroelectric power. Um, they were also for a while clustered a lot in China. Um, and that seems to have been the case where there was state-subsidized electric power that people who were well-placed were able to sort of tap into and essentially get sub-market costs uh, of electricity in order to mine Bitcoin. Um, so, you know, and this is constantly changing. Uh, uh, China broke uh, uh, cracked down on that, and so it's no longer concentrated as much in China uh, anymore as it was, say, three or four years ago. Um, but, you know, there's also the infrastructure of just the, the fiber optic cables that we, you know, that need to move these things around. Um, so you could study that. So I think infrastructure is actually a really interesting one for this. Um, but then ultimately, you still have places where people are gathering, um, like, you know, you know, Silicon Valley. Silicon Valley still has a lot of activity, even though it's crazy expensive to live there. Uh, it's crazy expensive to start a firm there. Um, but people, you know, are still, there's still a reason to be there because there's access to skills, there's access to capital. So you get this really, you get this really complex network that touches down in different places, which, yeah, I mean, if, I mean, that's why I say it's there, if anything, geography is something more important, more complicated uh, for how these things structured. They're just, it's, it's, it, it doesn't go away. It's not like we're all living in the cloud. It, it just becomes much more complicated. Okay, so so I think that that's a pretty interesting kind of point you have there, that on, on the one hand, it is agglomerating in these sort of classic tech places like Silicon Valley and maybe like, I can only assume like Shenzhen in China. Um, but at the other on the other hand, it is sort of liberating people from an office. And so it's giving them also the opportunity to individually cluster in places that don't necessarily make sense. Um, one aspect of uh, Portugal in specific, and it kind of brings us to our next point, is that people are often going to Portugal because of the very, very relaxed taxation on crypto. So how, as this becomes maybe more prevalent or equivalently prevalent, but still important, how can governments try to regulate crypto and, and why does it seem so difficult for them to do it? Yeah, um, huge question. 
we still have lots of offshore financial centers for regular regular financial sector. Why is it so hard for governments to uh, regulate those? And there's lots of reasons. You know, there's secrecy laws. The the fact that lots of people who might be regulators are actually benefiting from this sort of uh, these sort of offshore locations. There's lots of incentives not to regulate these these things. Um, and that exists in regular finance as it does uh, within uh, cryptocurrency finance as well. Uh, cryptocurrency adds, you know, a couple new things. Why it makes it more difficult? One, it's 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 a new thing, and as I as I was saying, when it's something new, there aren't laws for it, or the the regulatory structures and who's responsible for it get a bit murky, and no one's quite sure what's allowed and what's not allowed, um, and people try as best they can to confuse their location or where they're located, you know, depends depending on what what they're trying to do. I've 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 interviewed and talked to people who are like, yeah, we we're 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 gonna locate in this particular location because we can get access to the minister minister of finance, and the minister of finance will tell us these specific things that this is allowed, this is not allowed, um, and in some ways that certainty is more important to uh, to folks. Uh, particularly as it becomes increasingly mainstream or legitimate, because they're not trying to hide, you know, a few million dollars, you know, that they made from uh, from mining Bitcoin. They're worried about the hundreds of millions of dollars in their investment fund that they don't want to go away and they don't want to get arrested because they're, you know, they're bankers. They could be making, you know, tens of millions of dollars elsewhere doing something else. So that's that's where they're 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 trying to find uh, the sort of regulatory structure as well. Okay, because because what you're saying, I think, in a sense, has really shed light on the fact that maybe this isn't anything new. That, that people have always been finding ways to kind of secretly send money or exchange money or hide their money. So is crypto actually really changing the way we're interacting across borders in that sense, or is it? Sort of another flavor of vanilla ice cream. Yeah, I mean, I think it's. I mean, it's a great question. I think you know, I've probably been leading you to that uh, destination or destination because I will say, in, in, in many ways, I don't think crypto is a new flavor of ice cream, or maybe it is a new flavor of ice cream. It's still ice cream, if, if that metaphor works. Um, it's still sort of finance. Early days, um, it was a little different because it was still. So new, no one really knew what was going on. You know, there were, it was it was it was less put together. As it becomes more and more formalized, uh, it does seem more and more sort of akin to uh, a different segment of the financial industry with different rules, regulations, different advantages and disadvantages. Now that said, I do think there are some ways in which it is changing things beyond this sort of financial technology. And some of that, I think the most important stuff, uh, the most important examples of that are more ideological uh, in terms of a lot of this is coming out of a very sort of libertarian mindset that there is no role for government. You see, you see this in a lot of sort of anti-government or anti-central authority, which all works great if you're a young, rich software developer 
from Silicon Valley who doesn't really need the state or need, you know, and has a has a powerful passport and go can go anywhere. It's very different if your your positionality is is is, is different because then you know the state can provide protections. You know, and again, certainly issues with with states as well, but there is a an element of Let's move away from sort of communal ideas or sort of, you know, welfare state kind of ideas. We'll all be sort of hardy individuals in a libertarian system that I think is problematic because it does lead things to things like turning a blind eye to, you know, drug trafficking, human trafficking, things like that, which can use, uh, you know, cryptocurrency as a way to move money uh, secretly. So could you say then that kind of we find the same problems now with cryptocurrency as we found with just normal money in the beginnings of money? Yeah, I mean, I think the reason I find studying the Internet so fascinating, I've been doing it for decades, is that you have two contradictory things. One is you have this new technology gets introduced But larger structures sort of keep things moving along the way it is. It's not the technology is socially embedded, and so it reflects society. Um, the second contradictory thing is, except in certain cases or in certain ways, that there are always sort of unexpected ways that there there's openings, there there's contractions, there's 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 you know possibilities and problems that come with that, and trying to figure out how that happens with any particular technology like crypto or blockchain is always a really interesting part. Okay. Um, so I guess kind of taking all of this together, I think we, we first of all very clearly established that as geographers, the entire concept of decentralized feels, feels far-fetched or perhaps non-spatial feels far-fetched. And as a geographer of this theoretically non-spatial discipline, I'm really excited to ask you this question that we ask all of our guests at the end of each podcast. So in your eyes, what is geography or what does it mean here? As I said earlier, you can't understand crypto or blockchain without geography. Um, and you can't understand anything digital without geography. Um, I mean, it's we need to we need the digital uh, we need or we need geography to understand the digital. Um, so firstly, we need the digital to understand geography. And what I mean by that is, oh, we have all these you know long-standing concepts: agglomeration, clustering, mobility, uh, location, all these sort of things. Um, they still really matter, and they're still you know central in how the world works. Um, but they're different now and different in fascinating ways because of what you can do with digital technology. Okay. Amazing. And I think, I think something that you said earlier in this podcast that I love was that we don't live in the cloud yet. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think maybe just the last thing I might say is that I do, um, two big things I sort of take away from crypto and, and blockchain is one is the sort of dream slash ideology. That's really powerful. The, the, the dream of having a decentralized community, 
And that really hasn't come to pass. I don't think it actually can come to pass, given all kinds of things in terms of the way the world is structured. But that's a really powerful dream and a really attractive dream, particularly uh, when you see the problems uh, from centralized, uh, centralized systems, centralized power. The second thing I think is really interesting um, with crypto and blockchain is this is the potential of NFTs. Now, I'm, I want to be clear. I think in some ways they're, 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 they're very use, useless. I mean, we can just think about Trump's latest, you know, you know, launch of NFTs, you know, whoever bought those, you know, or whatever, what kind of money laundering scheme. But the thing that's really interesting, and I'm not sure if this NFTs is going to be the solution, but the problem they're trying to solve is really interesting. They're trying to solve this problem of the lack of scarcity for digital goods or the lack of scarcity for anything digital. And that is, again, not a problem per se because it's great because we can like, make copies and free that. But if you want to be able to build a, an economy or build markets where it's buying and selling digital objects, you need to have that scarcity. Otherwise, there's no there's there's no market because who's going to buy anything when it's everything's free or there's a million copies of it. And so those two things, this sort of dream and then this uh, this effort to figure out or solve the problem of lack of uh, digital scarcity, I think are some of the most interesting things with uh, crypto and uh, blockchain.